This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. So the mountain of Potosi in southern Bolivia was, in the 1500s, a place that produced 60% of the world's silver. It's a place of wealth, but also of great tragedy. And it's also a place that challenges the very idea of a scientific revolution. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Jorge Canizares Esquera talks about Potosí, its people and its technologies, and the way they shaped 16th century science. The story of the mountain challenges the classic story of the scientific revolution in Europe. Canizares Esquera is the Alice Drysdale Sheffield Professor of History at the University of Texas at Austin. His work's been honored by so many different places, including the American Historical Association, the History of Science Society, and his book, his first book, How to Write the History of the New World was cited as one of the best books of the year by The Economist, The Independent, and The Times Literary Supplement. We get a little bit technical at points in this interview, so for the record, Atlantic history is the study of societies connected by the Atlantic, that is, Africa, Europe, and the Americas, and how they became connected, especially after the voyages of Columbus. Jorge Canizares Esquera, thank you for talking with me today. You're welcome. Thank you. You know, one of the criticisms we get as historians sometimes is that we choose these small questions and bore into them and don't pay enough attention to the big picture. But in almost all of your works, you look at the big picture issues a lot. You focus on things like, you know, the scientific revolution or the Atlantic world or how do we tell a history of the Americas. Um, And so I was wondering if you could give listeners at least a sense of 
this latest article you wrote on the scientific revolution. First, you know, what would be your kind of elevator speech for what is the scientific revolution? And then I'm going to ask you about how uh, you, you challenge that idea. Right. Well, I have no idea what the scientific revolution is. <laughs> <laughs> but I do know that whatever folks tell us what the scientific revolution is, is missing uh, fundamental aspects or substantive aspects of what transpired. Yeah, maybe you could just tell us what is the potted narrative of the scientific revolution. What do what is the kind of, you know, accepted narrative? Well, there there, there is the more popular one that is about these major transformations in the understanding of the cosmos that begin first with Copernicus, uh, then then uh, Galileo and finally uh, culminate with uh, Newton. It's mm -hmm. about uh, uh, a revolution in our understandings of physics, in our understandings of the cosmos. Uh, that, that, I think, is the uh, Carl Sagan interpretation that is mm -hmm. out there with most folks. Uh, and it has, it has heroes with names, Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, and then others kind of in between, Descartes, uh, bacon, if you are truly uh, sophisticated. And it has to do with uh, modernity as well, kind of the arrival of modernity. We used to be uh, non-modern, and now we are modern with this transformation. Uh, the Earth and the cosmos uh, become finally familiar to us. We can understand it in terms of uh, uh, science in the past, we did not. We were kind of mired in these false, wrong ideas uh, about how the cosmos works. So mm -hmm. I think that is the the popular interpretation. And then historians have tinkered with that, of course, mm -hmm. and made uh, important contributions in that. Well, uh, who is really behind these processes? Uh, is it just a great man, or it's uh, other? Uh, protagonists or artisans who are doing mm -hmm. uh, machines, who are doing or applying all these ideas uh, onto uh, machines and transforming the economy in the process of doing that. So modernity comes on the one hand with these uh, notions of the cosmos that are changing, but also with these other processes of mathematization of production, mathematization of nature. Uh, the instrumentalization of nature as well that did ultimately to the industrial revolution so the two things kind of come together ultimately in the 18th century and lead to modernity as we know it and and yet you argue that this uh vision of the scientific revolution maybe even the concept of the revolution itself is deeply flawed and you and you give some pretty um detailed examples of it. One of the most striking was the, the story of Potosi. I I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, what this place was, what its function was, and then how do you think it challenges that view? Yes. Well, Potosi is a mountain in highland Bolivia that was essentially uninhabited when the Spaniards arrived in South America. Uh, and all of a sudden, from 1530 to 1600, it became one of the largest cities on earth. Uh, about 100, 160,000 people living in these, in, in these, the middle of nowhere, 
very high up uh, in the mountains, about almost 5,000 meters above sea level, what would be um, 14,000 feet, very high up in the mountains, mm-hmm. where uh, I would say by 1600, uh, 60% of the silver in the planet was produced in that mountain. Wow. So the thing with the with Potosí is how that happened and why that happened. And how it happened reveals uh, the nature of modernity and science uh, at the time. But it's a story that uh, transpires, happens in places we don't usually think of when it comes to scientific revolution. Scientific revolution, in theory, happens in London, happens in Cambridge, happens, I don't know, Italy, Pisa, uh, that type of places, but not in Potosí and not with Indians in Peru. Uh, so they, they seem to be antithetical. They mm-hmm. seem to be uh, unrelated. Um so this, the, the argument is that Potosí uh, is not only the product of Spanish uh, colonialism and imperialism that was uh, forcing Indians to work in mines. The, that is the kind of picture we have, most uh, school kids have of Spanish colonization, is in Spaniards exploiting Indians. And if silver came from Potosí, it was that way, through plundering and murdering Indians. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's, it's far more interesting and far more complicated story in which uh, experimentation, in which uh, technologies of all kinds uh, were introduced and were modified uh, in scales that uh, are comparable to what happened in the midlands uh, in England in the late 18th and early 19th centuries that we call industrial revolution. So what do you see as the biggest technological advancements at Potosí during this time? So, for instance, Potosí. Potosí began as a mountain almost of pure silver, uh, 1540s. Indians from all central Peru begin to arrive in the mountain and set up foundry uh, foundries in which they would take the rock and they smelted in these Indian ovens that are called huayras, and there are 7,000 of them by 1560, producing massive quantities of silver by smelting the rock in these Native American ovens. But by 1560s, the purity of the silver in the rock begins to decrease, which meant basically that foundries and smelting could not, could no longer produce uh, the silver that Potosí was producing, which basically meant the incorporation of Central European technologies. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, mills. Mills to crush the ore into powder uh, and then mix the powder with mercury and do all sorts of chemical process in order to uh, speed up the mixing time and then separate the amalgam from the silver, especially using using water. That was the Central European model for extracting silver with mercury that came wholesale to Central Peru. We're talking about thousands of males. And mm-hmm. by 1600, from 1560, 1580 to 1600, Potosí is surrounded by, a, by about 30 artificial lakes that are humongous uh, lakes. You're talking about 
a vast engineering system that transformed the environment and created artificial lakes uh, huge enough to keep on these factories of crushing the ore, uh, producing powder, amalgamating these powders with mercury, uh, and then extracting from the amalgam the amalgams with water and eventually new technologies, the silver, which would in turn uh, be uh, shipped to Europe on the one hand and to China on the other hand. So if I were to uh, play devil's advocate here, wouldn't you say that the, the, let's say, the drive for this kind of industrialized silver production is uh, generated from Europe and uh, did uh, rely primarily upon European technological techniques? How would you answer that? That is, that is partially true. Indeed, uh, the, uh, the market for silver was introduced by the arrival of the Spaniards and the Europeans to the Americas, definitely. Uh, but then Potosí wasn't a Spanish city by and large. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a city uh, in which the Spanish monarchy as a whole was represented. So you have in Potosí by, six, by 1600 people from all over the world. You have Goans from India. You have Calicutians from India. You have folks from Macau. You have slaves from China, slaves from Japan. You have of course, Native Americans, you have Europeans of all kinds, uh, not only Spaniards, you have Armenians, you have uh, Macedonians, Greeks. Well, I mean, it's a microcosmos of the globe mm -hmm. by 1600 living in highland Peru. And why you have people from all these places? Well, you, partly because the monarchy, uh, the Spanish monarchy is a monarchy that is global by 1600, that it includes both the Spanish and Portuguese empires in Africa, in India, uh, in Asia, uh, and in the Americas. And also uh, because it's one of the most important engines of the global economy. So it attracts a lot of people, not only natives from all over South America uh, moved into these towns, not only Potosí, but the towns surrounding Potosí, and the entire economy of South America in the central Andes is organized around the needs of Potosí. Uh, the entire economy of, of this central South America was organized around this single town. Uh, that was uh, not only incorporating Central European technologies, but as production began in Potosí, you have all sorts of technological improvements, technological breakthroughs that begin to transform the Central European uh, traditions. Yeah. So new ovens are created, uh, new chemical processes are created, are introduced. Uh, and many, I mean, for instance, the production of mercury from ores, uh, most of the innovation worldwide is coming from, from Peru. Uh, and then that innovation travels to Europe. Uh, mercury mines in Europe begin to implement the new technologies that are developed in Potosí and Huancabí. Yeah, that was what my next question, which is, you know, um, when you and I came up through graduate school, the, you know, work of uh, Bruno Latour and others who talked about a kind of central hub of scientific institutions and activities in Europe. And then you had, yeah, you had explorers and you had other people going to the colonies and um, bringing stuff back and uh, kind of... Uh, you know, wheel hub model, I guess, of scientific knowledge. 
And your work definitely uh, challenges that along with a number of others. I, I wonder if you could talk about how you think your work fits into that challenge. Right. Yes, there you have the center periphery model in which the peripheries are usually uh, uh, consumers of uh, whatever the centers of calculation uh, come up with. Um, so you have the peripheries provide materials, objects, information, data uh, that then flows uh, into the centers of calculations, be them in Paris or Berlin or Madrid or London. And then they return in forms of commodities, industrialized commodities or commodities with value-added uh, value. And so you have that model of colonialism and uh, movement of knowledge uh, that is very much embedded in our understanding of modernity, I think. Uh, I don't think Latour mm -hmm. addresses that at all. I mean, his very model of centers of calculation imply that they have to be located in Europe. They have to be located in, in uh, developed uh, places. It, it's, in that model, you have the uh, underdeveloped developed understanding of economies and geographies uh, implicit, Im embedded in that model. And I'm saying, at least for the early modern period, the, 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 the case of Potosí, that, that, that model doesn't work at all. And it seems like it doesn't work either, if I'm reading your work correctly, in the way, or let's say the medium of knowledge, how knowledge gets spread, um, right? You talk a lot about the importance of, of letters and personal networks. Could you talk about that? Yes. Well, that, that is another element uh, of the work on Potosi that challenges the categories that we have to grapple with uh, the scientific revolution and grapple with notions of uh, modernity. The scientific revolution comes hand in hand with other categories. One of them is print culture. The second one is a republic of letters. And the third one is the public sphere. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have modernity without them we have been told, and democracy, and everything that uh, we hold dear. But if you look at Potosí, it's a very good example of knowledge that is produced without print culture and without the Republic of Letters that is mm. that can be seen. It's a model of knowledge production that is not a liberal polity, that, that produces lots uh -huh. of knowledge, but not in a liberal polity. So liberalism mm -hmm. with print culture, republic of letters, public sphere, is not a prerequisite to have innovation and transformation of knowledge, as the case of Potosi demonstrates. Uh, you have another model of political system that does not encourage print culture, in Potosi in particular, although the Spanish monarchy did have a very lively print culture, but folks did not get rewards by printing their innovations and making it available to the public. Uh -huh. That that wasn't the way it worked. It, it, it worked through an ancient regime model of rewards and merit in which the crown has the key to redistributed justice that we call grace. And through this model of grace and rewards, individuals would send requests to the crown uh, with and document all their innovations, technological innovations and then get some kind of pension or some kind of uh, uh, transformation in their social status. Uh, they'll become novels or something or be uh, knighted or what have you. Uh, so the 
the system is an ancient regime system that is producing modernity, so which is antithetical to our notions of of modernity itself. You have you can have ancient regime non-liberal uh, polities that produce modernity. So, one you know when uh, when you wrote your book, your first book, well, I think it was your first book, um, how to write the history of the new world. Uh, that was two thousand and one, right? When that yes. Came? So yes, that was. Really, there were two things going on, as I remember it at that time. One was, um, you know, I was just starting grad school at that point. Well, I, no, I'd been in grad school since 98. But uh, it seemed like post-colonial studies had really exploded within the field of uh, not only of history, but history of science. Um, and so there was that going on. And then at the same time, or slightly earlier in 1995, you had this... Um, seminar in Atlantic history that started at Harvard. And your your work really kind of touches upon both of those. You published this at the, you know, the early period of that. And I was wondering how you see your work within it. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll just give you a hint of where I'm going with this. Um, one of the problems that I had with some of the post-colonial studies uh, at this time was it seemed like everything, uh, the work of scientists, the work of explorers, uh, the work of uh, virtually everybody who was in the Americas or in Africa or in Asia, was doing the work of empire. And it seemed like um, not only were, were there was this, this kind of mono, monolithic empire story being told, but that the stories of indigenous peoples themselves was kind of muted, um, and there wasn't a whole lot of agency there. So anyway, that's too long a question, but I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Yes, definitely. Well, the, the book, what the book does is to demonstrate that many of the things we attribute to the European Enlightenment and to modernity or to the 19th century uh, revolution in historiography, the professionalization of history, were first tried out in places like Mexico, places like Peru. Whether they, ha they, whether they influence uh, Europe is something else, uh, probably not. But the point is that in these places, the discipline of history witnesses innovations that are remarkable. That is also true for uh, the historiography in the Iberian Peninsula. So you were talking about uh, historiography and how your work, I can see the influence of that in your work, but at the same time, it seems to me that you also are let's say, are reacting against certain post-colonial ideas. I guess that's the way I would yes. frame it. Yes. Uh, yes, definitely. I am very critical of post-colonialism for very simple reasons. It has, um, even though it seeks to provi provincialize Europe, um, allegedly, it has ceded the category of the West to three countries on Earth, through three tiny little societies. <laughs> Um, and uh, that really bothers me uh, quite a bit because the West is a co-creation of it's a global co-creation whatever that means do you think it actually just to, to stop you there do you think the West has meaning as a as a con category well I don't really think so it has an ideological meaning that seeks to separate these three four societies from the rest of the world uh, definitely it does you can see that in museums uh, but in fact, uh, all these things that we attribute to the West are, are 
co global co-creations, and that is what I suggest with the case of Potosí. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but in the case of, of my book, the first book that we are discussing, it's, it's obvious. I mean, the places that are playing a significant leading role in the transformation of historiographies, methodologies, uh, understandings of history as, as a category are taking place in, in many, many different places. And they are taking yeah. place in a dialogue, in a back and forth. They are not just creations that are happening in, in Paris or happening in London. You see that with the Scottish Enlightenment. You see that with the French Enlightenment in their understanding of conjectural history. That is what the, the book tackles. The, the rise of conjectural history that in the 19th century is going to be transformed into linguistics, geology, mm -hmm. and all sorts of new disciplines. This need to be critical and skeptical of history, uh, written history, that the, the Bible or all these historical narratives universal historical narratives that were predicated on written documents. Yeah. And the first place that is used in order to criticize uh, the reliability of historical narratives that are predicated on writing is the Americas. Uh, yeah. And so new conjectural histories of the Americas begin to emerge in the Enlightenment, but in the process of creating new methodologies that are not that do not rely on writing, but rely on the distribution of animals that rely on the shape of mountains, rely on the rivers, direction of rivers, uh, etc., shape of continents, linguistic structures. You have a very vibrant debate in which uh, the reply from the so-called periphery is just as creative as the the new disciplines that are that are being created in places like Scotland, political economy, or Paris, biodistribution. And it's in, in this dialogue, in this back and forth, that historiography begins yeah. to be transformed. So to play devil's advocate again, and this side from, you know, this time from the post-colonial side, I guess, um, one of the things I think you could say that the post-colonial revolution did was it looked at all those old stories, uh, particularly the stories that I'm interested in, history of exploration, and it said, you're missing this entire side. You're viewing this world purely from the view of um, explorers or from the Europeans who sent explorers, and you're ignoring the kind of devastation that these people wielded, these kind of asymmetries of power, right, that ended up, uh, you know, hurting, devastating societies in the Americas and in Africa and Asia. So if you are bringing back the agency, let's say, of these people and saying, look, the West was co-created. It was developed in Europe as well as Potosi and in other places in the Americas. Do you run the risk of diminishing the damage that was done by Europeans to these places? Well, the intention of this is not to paper over the violence of colonialism and the violence of modernity. I mean, modernity comes hand in hand with the slave yeah. trade. Modernity, not only the first um, the slave trade, by second slavery in 19th century, there is no industrial revolution and there is no United States without second slavery, without the South. Um, so these, these yeah. things come hand in hand. It's like trying to sever the history of uh, the tragedies of the, that led to what the United States is today from the history of racism, slavery, um, 
plantation economies, wiping out entire indigenous uh, peoples from the southeast, the resettlement of folks from the southeast into Oklahoma, and then the wiping out of the peoples of the plains. Yeah. Um, definitely, yes. Uh, it's, 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 it's one and the same. So when we... And that is one of the problems with 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 this pian of modernity and the scientific revolution that uh, that kind of papers over in this narrative of geniuses uh, the cost of modernity. But and this is the big but in my account is that 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 thing that came out of it that we all these values that we hold dear to democracy, tolerance, uh, so on and so forth, uh, are that we cannot attribute only to the colonial, the, the underbelly of modernity. We have to attribute the good things of modernity to the colonial as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That we can, we have separated, we have created a epistemological geopolitics in which the good things of modernity are attributed to certain places that we call the West, and the underbelly of modernity that came with the good things we attribute to these other places that are Africa, South America, banana republics, and so on and so forth. So, and we feel yeah. there couldn't be a better deal. <laughs> <laughs> My interest in the history of science really grew through history of exploration, and that field has certainly changed a great deal in the last 20 years, but. To me, there seems like a kind of essential tension between the perspective of the explorer and those of the people and the places being encountered. Do you think there's a way out of this? Or there is there a way to write um, a better history uh, of exploration? Well, that's a good question. I, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe to rephrase the question is, what do you think we should be paying attention to that we're we are not. I mean, there's definitely a much greater sensitivity in, let's at least among historians who look at history of exploration, to the perspectives of Native peoples. But as your own work points out, that's not enough. Uh, I mean, post-colonial studies does that too. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, I do. Like, I think the the problem with with the narrative of exploration and uh, colonization and uh, host societies is that freezes in time these host societies. Yeah. That, mm. for instance, I just finished an article for History uh, of Technology uh, that is about this Indian uh, in Potosi. I think it's Bartolomea Tahualpa, if, if my memory doesn't fail me. Bartolomea Tahualpa was the son of a Spaniard and an Inca prince in Quito. This Spaniard came to Santa Marta in the 1560s to pacify Tierra Firme as a soldier. Uh, Then he moved on to Quito on his way to Potosí, encountered this Indian noble, married her, uh, and had a kid uh, who eventually, with the father, moved to Potosí and wrote this treatise on machines um, and sent the treatise back to Madrid in order to get gracia, in order to get rewards and probably a coat of arms, be knighted or get a pension. Their claim is that the uh, their new technologies had shortened the time of amalgamation and therefore saved the crown millions. 
yeah. uh, in Mercury and so on and so forth. So it, it was Bartolomé Inca, Bartolomé Inca, no, it's not Bartolomé Atahualpa, Bartolomé Inca, who took the manuscript with him all the way to Madrid to visit the king and get the rewards. Now, what is striking about these manuscripts is, first of all, it's a manuscript of machines uh, with all sorts of designs written by an Indian, quote-unquote, by an Inca. The other thing that is striking is that it's written in code. Hmm. It's not supposed... I mean, he was... the, the Bartolomé Inga was very fearful that when taking a manuscript through the Atlantic, it would be captured by pirates. Uh-huh. So he didn't want to give away the secret, so he took the manuscript to Madrid, coded. When he arrived in Madrid, the crown took the manuscript and said, well, okay, so let's let's discuss. But the secretary of Philip III, who was also a secretary of Philip II, was a great de- decoder. He was the Alan Turing of Europe at the time. <laughs> he was known for breaking the code of the Dutch or the British Every document that was coded in battles against the Dutch or the or the British or the French would be taken to this guy, and this guy would decode in these public uh, displays of skills and mathematical skills would take the the code and break it in front of the entire court, and he was lionized. And so, when Bartolomé Inga arrived with a coded manuscript, the first thing the king did is, oh, wait a minute, I don't need the key for the code, we'll give it to Alan Turing. And so Alan Turing arrived, and so there was a big display, a big party, and he began to break the code. And so we are left with the papers of this guy with all the manuscripts he decoded, except this one. He could not break the code. (laughs) So there are many lessons to to this story. The lessons is that Bartolomé Inga, who we usually cast in the history of knowledge and the history of technology as an Indian who was exploited and had no role whatsoever in treatises of machinery and treatises of uh, chemistry, uh, uh, could not possibly write something like this, but he did. And in addition to that, he was better mathematician than the Alan Turing of the early people. <laughs> so the lesson of this story is that the history of exploration has cast the Bartolomé Ingas in this role of passive victims of, yeah. of these explorers that are doing things and they are kind of just watching and trying to defend themselves from the evil of these guys. But in fact, these guys are participating just as actively in whatever new things these guys are bringing and embracing them and transforming them and doing them much better than the guys who brought them <laughs> in, the, in the first place. So I think that is my critique of, of the field. Yeah. Jorge Canizares Esquera, thank you for talking with me today. Well, thank you. That's our show for today. Next week, Eric Berger, senior space editor at Ars Technica, talks about the Falcon Heavy launch and what this massive rocket means for human planetary exploration. Let me ask you a favor. Please rate the show, leave a review, and tell your friends about the podcast. If you want to get in touch, feel free to email me. I'm at time to eat the dogs, one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.